From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A family outside Durango shares how they're doing one year into the pandemic. Hey, we're really good at playing Yahtzee now. We'll also hear from a Greeley mom who got COVID-19 while pregnant with her second child. She spent days on a ventilator. Then coronavirus necessities like wearing masks and keeping distance have changed the way people practice religions. So we're kind of like looking for what's obligatory, what's a pillar in the ritual and what's voluntary in the ritual in the light of the pandemic and trying to adjust this. Plus, how one woman is connecting with her church despite a year of distancing. And could a clone ensure the future of the endangered black-footed ferret? It's pretty inspiring that people 30 years ago saved those tissues in case this could happen someday. I'm Carol from Highlands Ranch. I'm an Evergreen member. Today is so stressful, and when I tune into CPR, either the news or the classical music, I just feel my soul renewed. You do offer a healing that you just don't realize the depth of, and I thank you for that. Thank you for your continued essential support for CPR. This doesn't happen without you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Steph Sherman and I met at the Snowdown Parade in Durango last February. The Winter Festival, with its costumes, competitions, and shows, draws hundreds from the Four Corners and beyond. I didn't know it then, but it was my last time before the pandemic hit Colorado that I would be mingling in crowds, talking with strangers. I was in the Four Corners meeting voters ahead of the presidential primaries. Healthcare was a big concern for Sherman's family even before the pandemic. While we waited for the parade to start, she told me that her husband has diabetes and her youngest kid, who's eight, has several health conditions, among them serious asthma. They just met the deductible for their insurance plan, more than $8,000. To pay it, they had to sell things off, like their four-wheeler. Sherman and I talked a few times since about how she and her family are doing in the pandemic. It's been a year since COVID-19 came to Colorado, and she's one of the people we're following up with to see what's changed and what hasn't in the last 12 months. We had funerals, well, or the lack of funerals. We lost family members and we couldn't have gatherings. We couldn't get together and support. We had to like schedule a drive-by, hey, here's some flowers, hey, I'm so sorry, stuff like that. But like the biggest part of it was having to stay home and figure out what to do with the kids, which in itself was actually kind of cool because it's like, hey, we discovered a new part of our property that we didn't know about. Or, um, hey, we're really good at playing Yahtzee now. Last spring, Steph Sherman lost two jobs because of the pandemic. Her husband's construction work continued, so they adjusted to living on one income. And she helped her kids, who are 8, 10, and 12 years old, navigate virtual school and spotty internet at their home on Red Mesa that's about 30 miles outside Durango. When her kids' schools reopened to in-person classes in September, they were glad to actually see their friends, even with masks on. And Sherman did some substitute teaching. Then COVID-19 cases surged as the weather got colder. When we shut down in November, we got an hour and a half notice. I got the call and it's like, hey, we're going into quarantine. Um, Tell your teachers to pack as much of the kids' supplies to send home in their backpacks. Sherman said remote school was hard on each of her kids in different ways. For her youngest, who has an attention disorder. He's so behind because of his disabilities that I don't 
feel like he flourished at all when he was having to do the remote learning. I, I can only teach him so much. I try to just teach him what I know, just simple math, writing, and reading. Like that was what I focused on. I I didn't care that he didn't know where the pilgrims came from for the sake of our family and the stress that it was putting on our family. We had to just pick our priorities and that means not turning in a whole lot of other work. He gets special education support. So does her 10 year old who has ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. The physical therapist, the speech therapist, the occupational therapist, like they all tried, but that's another zoom meeting that that's two more Zoom meetings. That's three more Zoom meetings. And then um, and when I tell them, you know, that's really difficult for me because I have another special needs child plus another kid. So Zoom meetings are kind of hard for me to try to coordinate. Um, so then they send me stuff and it's like, OK, you need to print this. And it's like, OK, so then I, I'm printing off all of these materials to try to give for my kid, but that's that much more work. I was running because I tried to set up classroom areas for my kids in different places of the house so that they could listen and do their Zoom calls. So I'm running up and downstairs trying to be a support for each of the kids and help them out. You know, okay, we need to turn your mute button off. You know, they're they're still trying to learn all this stuff. And, you know, and I'd have to, you know, okay, you go outside because you're distracting the other kids. So then I'd have to work with one at a time. And that would draw it out even further, trying to make sure that each kid got the support that they needed. If I'm being honest, I didn't get to most of that stuff because I was trying to focus on the priorities. Okay, is my kid getting the water? Is my kid getting the exercise? Is my kid getting in the math and the reading and the writing? Sherman's oldest is 12, and she started middle school in the pandemic. My daughter was, her grades were failing. You know, she went from straight A's down to F's. And, you know, and that's not like her. So she's disappointed in herself. We're trying to help her, but she's frustrated because that's not how her teacher taught her to. And, you know, bless their hearts. They try so hard, but they're stuck in front of a screen. And for Steph Sherman herself, this year has been a doozy. So we got put in quarantine in March. I lost my grandpa in April. That was hard because he raised me. So I've been kind of on a spiral. Um, And I've actually had to start therapy and I had to start taking antidepressants. My husband, thank goodness, he's in the whole construction part of stuff. He was able to keep his job and he's been able to just keep trucking. And that's amazing. But it still leaves me at home doing stuff with kids, trying to get their schoolwork done. But I fell hard. I wasn't happy being home and I wasn't happy seeing my kids. And that's not me. So I sought help. I went and saw my doctor. I feel like there's a little more hope now. But I... Is there a means to an end in sight? Like, when will we be, we be able to be happy? Political polarization that surrounds COVID-19 has also weighed on Sherman. She feels caught. She voted for Donald Trump in the presidential election, but she doesn't identify as a Republican. I think a lot of it is, is a political-based thing. But if you 
if you're like, oh, you need to wear your mask, you need to be safe, you need to wash your hands, you, you know, you're a Democrat. Or if, and then if you're going through and you're like, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, I'm not going to wear my mask, so you're a Republican. And I'm not saying that that's how it is, but that's the fight that we seem to be in. If I say I'm going to wear my mask, I have even family members that are like, well, you're stupid then. And so I don't know how to, you can't please everyone. So it kind of comes down to, I'm going to do what's best for me and my family. But as COVID-19 cases go down, things are looking up. Sherman's kids are back in class in person four days a week, and she's getting a lot of work substitute teaching. They seem happier. And I think most importantly, they're excited to come home and they're excited to tell us about their day. I'm excited for them to be home and I'm excited to hear about their day, which is refreshing. She says she'll probably get the vaccine when it's available to her, but it doesn't feel like a guaranteed light at the end of the tunnel. She's finding more hope in the possibility that her kids might go back to school five days a week soon. I'm excited for the five days because I think that my kids will benefit the most from it. Um, And then I can get back to work as well and home can be a fun place again. Steph Sherman and her family live in the Four Corners area outside Durango. She's one of the Coloradans we spoke with earlier in the pandemic who were catching up with this month to see how they're doing one year into the coronavirus crisis. Tens of thousands of women have given birth in Colorado during the pandemic. Veronica Markley of Greeley is one of them. She even got COVID-19 while pregnant and spent days on a ventilator. That's when we first met her in the hospital. She delivered her daughter last June. She spoke with my colleague May Ortega. Hi, Veronica. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, is your daughter there with you? Yeah, she is. Her name is Luna Flora Markley. Oh my gosh, she's so cute. And how old is she now? She just turned eight months. Oh my god, she's so little. She's so cute. I can't handle this. <laughs> Her big cheeks. Oh, and she's dressed so stylish too. What is your favorite thing about her at this point? Oh man, she is just a happy little girl. She's always smiling and she loves her mama and papa. She loves us so much. So every time she sees Papa or Mama, she's always like got the biggest grin and she loves her brother Rio. And now Luna is kind of like your pandemic baby, right? So you were pregnant. You gave birth during the pandemic. So let's go back to your pregnancy. CPR's visuals editor, Hart Van Denberg, first met you at a Denver hospital last May when you were getting an ultrasound. And he says it's one of the moments he'll always remember about the pandemic. Everybody in the room had masks on and had gloves on. And it's not a normal situation. And one of the things that I remembered was this, this really endearing thing where she and her husband both had to have gloves on. And they were holding gloved hands while she was getting the ultrasound and they were looking up at the TV. It was a really sweet moment and it was a complete pandemic moment at the same time. Wow. So, Veronica, what's something you remember very vividly about this pregnancy? Um, Just how difficult it was Um, emotionally, physically. It was just stressful just because I needed to make sure that I was being healthy so my baby could be healthy. So that was really, you know, a huge part of what I was undergoing. Really different from your first pregnancy, I imagine, because of that. Yes. And have you had any health effects of COVID-19 since last spring? 
you know, my hearing comes and goes. It's really strange. I need to do a checkup with my doctor about it. I don't know if it's due to the COVID or if it's due um, to the intubation. It's really difficult sometimes to hear. I feel like I'm underwater. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's like a pop and then, then I can hear again. So you told us at the time that this was not the birth that you would have wanted for yourself and for your daughter. Do you ever think about that now? Yes, I do. Um, especially coming up on the anniversary. You know, I it's hard not to get emotional about it. And I have a lot of uh, just not really regret, but just wish things had been different because mm-hmm. there was, you know, not only the hospitalization, but then at her birth, you know, I had tested positive again with COVID. And then I felt there were so many feelings there. You know, I felt guilty for possibly having exposed people. Mm. And then also it was really scary um, because just how is the birth going to go? You know, uh, the panic with the nurses and the doctors and myself, because again, it was still pretty early and not a lot known. Um, So yeah, I guess I get a little sad and upset, you know, that some of those precious moments when you first meet your child and they first come into this world is kind of taken away because you have all this other fear about death, about being sick, about making others sick. Is my baby going to be okay? Is my baby going to have COVID? You know, is my baby going to be taken away from me to the NICU? You know, am I going to even get to hold or see my baby? You know, these were all things that I had, Kyle and I, my husband and I had to deal with. And it was really, really difficult. I was in like the throes of a a breakdown. It was not pretty. Like I cried a lot, a lot. Yeah. It it really was. And just kind of reflecting on it right now, Mm -hmm. I I just think about, (laughs) I just think about how that I wish I had had that golden hour with her and I didn't, you know, that she was able to latch on her own, but I wasn't able to have that moment. You know, all these little moments yeah. that I was able to enjoy with my first and, you know, I guess took for granted didn't happen with the second mm-hmm. with Luna. So what about this whole last year? Do you think that you will tell Luna about when she's old enough to understand it all? You know, that's such a interesting question because... Mm-hmm. I've done several interviews now. They're like, oh, what a great story to tell your child or a great story of survival. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, you know, honestly, it's hard to sometimes relive that. And I don't mind doing interviews because I feel like it's my part in like advocacy. Sure. Yeah. Keeping people aware and that we're not just a percentage, we're people with faces, families, children, mothers, daughters. But it is hard to figure out, okay, how will I exactly tell my daughter someday that we pretty much were on the brink of death, you know, that Mm -hmm. she almost wasn't here in this world, you know, or maybe I wouldn't have been. That's a hard thing to talk about. It's not anything I necessarily want to celebrate. Yeah, I want to celebrate Mm -hmm. that we're both alive and thankful and blessed. But it's also, 
one of the hardest, saddest things I've had to undergo in my life. And how do I break that down to my daughter, you know? Uh, yeah, no, it makes sense. Really quick um, mm-hmm. shout out to my husband. He has been amazing. You know, um, so strong. Oh, I get sad thinking about it. Oh. Uh, it's got to be hard knowing that your wife and baby might not make it. Um and he was just so strong and he was so good at um, constantly just texting everyone, calling people, letting them know those things are emotional. You know, the anniversary of April 7th is when I went to, to the ER um, and he's going to take a couple days off to be here with us. So it's not such a sad day. It's we're going to do something fun. And now this was a very traumatic, heavy experience for you. Meanwhile, on top of all the stuff you're going through, I have to ask you, what was it like having heart there to photograph (laughs) some of these very private, intense, stressful moments you were dealing with? You know what? It was a pleasure to work with him. He was really just kind of hung back. It was like he wasn't even there. You know, I was just completely in the moment most of the time. He was just doing his thing and we were undergoing um, either our sonograms or when we were at the hospital or when we were here at home. Um, it was really fun. Well, I think out of the pandemic, uh, one of the best things, you know, because we have now we have these really awesome photographs. Mm-hmm. And that could be something that would be joyful to share with Luna yeah. when she's older. Like photos of just us being excited for you to come into this world. Something good <laughs> to associate yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. And now Luna is your second child. You also have a son, right? Is he around? Hi. What's your name? Say, I'm real. I'm real. (laughs) He'll be three in April. And how has he handled this year of isolation and having a new baby sister? Like a champ. Wow. Really well. You know, um, he adores Luna. When we brought her home from the hospital and he first met her, he was just completely taken. He is a really big help. You know, I can ask him, oh, can you get mama a fresh diaper? And he'll go grab her a diaper or he'll play with her. He'll give her abrazos and besos. And yeah, he's really good brother. I love it. Oh, my gosh. That's adorable. Hugs and kisses all around. (laughs) Uh, but he does go to our sitter once a week. Um, okay. He's fantastic. And it's for that social aspect. So he's still able yeah. to interact with other children. And now I know that in your career, you worked with kids a lot. And I understand that you had to make some hard choices this year when it came to what you do for a living. You're an elementary school teacher. Are you still teaching? No, I'm not. This would have been my 14th year teaching. Wow. I've taught elementary art my entire career. And um, it was a really hard decision at first mm-hmm. to take some time off. The factors were what were the safety nets that the district had put up? What was teaching going to be like? Is it going to be remote? Is it going to be in person? There was a lot of flip flop across the country. And then financial, that was probably our biggest. One of our biggest um, factors, you know, 
We got bills to pay. <laughs> we just had a new baby. You know, those are all things that we had to take in account. And it has been so wonderful to just be here with my children, you know, be their care, main caregiver. Uh, it's been really rewarding. Do I miss school? Some aspects of it. I do miss um, my students and my coworkers and those special relationships that you can build. Yeah. But I also like being able to see the little milestones for both my children, being able to roll over and knowing that my sitter wasn't the first person to see that. Yeah, it was me. for sure. And did you ever think that you would have to choose between your career and your family like at this stage in your life or was it more the pandemic kind of chose for you? Definitely the latter. The pandemic chose for me. Hmm. When I first had Rio, I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom just because I was so enamored with my child. But it didn't happen, and that's okay. And in normal time, like in a normal world, pre-pandemic, I probably would be back at school right now. I would be working. Hmm. And now, I mean, Luna is eight months now. What's been the biggest challenge for you since she was born? I guess my biggest challenge has been to figure out when it's safe to let other people see her. You know, we stayed away from people for a long time after she was born. We would go on walks every day, but I made sure that we were not in close proximity to other people She has met the grandparents on both sides, but it's still, there's still a lot of family that hasn't met her. And that's hard. That's hard because you want to share your adorable, cute, squishy baby with the world. (laughs) Yeah. And I haven't gotten that. And that has been really hard. That's, That's almost such a superficial thing to say. I love going to the doctors for her checkups because all the nurses be like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. She's so cute. And I was like, yes, give me more. I need more. (laughs) Tell me more about how she's cute. (laughs) CPR's May Ortega speaking with Veronica Markley of Greeley. Markley gave birth to her daughter Luna last summer after surviving COVID-19. See new photos that CPR's Hart Van Denberg took of the Markley family at CPR.org. When we come back, finding connection through religion despite pandemic restrictions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You may know Chef Andrew Zimmern from his TV show Bizarre Foods, but behind the jovial traveler is another story. I didn't get sober until I was 30. It was horrific. You know, I would steal bottles of Comet cleanser to sprinkle it around the clothes that I slept on every night so the rats and roaches wouldn't cross over me when I passed out. Andrew Zimmern kicks off a new season of Back From Broken. Listen free wherever you get your podcasts and at backfrombroken.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. 
The pandemic has changed the way people celebrate holidays and even practice religion. Last April, around Ramadan, we spoke with Imam Muhammad Khalila with Downtown Denver Islamic Center. He told us it was difficult to do rituals online, in part because some people didn't have access to technology. What recent refugees or recent immigrants or elders or people who speak different languages other than English, with the Muslim community is one of the most diverse communities in the U.S. with people who speak in like dozens of languages. We are not doing everything we want to do, but we're doing as much as we can. As Colorado approaches a year in the pandemic, we're checking in with folks to find out what's changed and what hasn't. Mohammed, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Have you been able to bring back in-person services? Partially, yes, we have been able to have to open the mosque's door for people to come and pray. But the challenge now that you, the capacity of the old times is not available anymore because you have to keep the social distancing. You have to make sure that the services are shorter so that people do not stay at the same place for longer time. Then people were very comfortable before staying longer after services like socializing and but now, not anymore. People like pray and then they have to leave because we have to divide the services. The last time we spoke also, you said that there were difficulties with technology, that some rituals, they don't retain their meaning. If you were to try to do them online, other folks just don't have access to technology. What's the situation with doing stuff online now? So, yeah, part of it is the theological aspect of Islam. Like some services have to be in person. Otherwise, the meaning is gone. For example, the congregation prayer. Congregation prayer has to be in person. We cannot pray congregationally virtually. So what we have moved online now, it's like the reminders, the classes, the educational aspect. For the services that you've been able to bring back in person, even though with fewer people, how have the rituals changed? So we have to kind of like slightly change them within the parameters of not annulling or defying the meanings of the ritual itself. Like, for example, in Islam, when people pray, they have to have touching shoulders to shoulders, heels to heels, like that type of things. But now, not anymore. So we have to adjust this and keep a space. Wearing a mask, it's not something that's preferred in Islam to cover your face while you're praying. So we have to do that. So we kind of like looking for what's obligatory, what's a pillar in the ritual and what's voluntary in the ritual in the light of the pandemic, and trying to adjust this. What is that like for you personally as a faith leader to have to figure out how to modify these rituals without, like you're saying, annulling their meanings? Yeah. So with the light of the pandemic, we we go through these um, lines of thoughts. How can we make it easy for the people, but at the same time, keep the connection with God alive with the people? God doesn't want from you to suffer while you're praying. And we're not just doing this from our minds, but we follow the traditions that has been around for 14 centuries. Because we have pandemics in the history and situations close to what's happening now happen to... So yeah, that, that's that's something that's really intricate in Islam, but not a lot of people are aware of it. Like seeing how like Islam teaches Muslims to be careful with their bodies. One of the main goals of Islamic laws is to preserve the human body. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to look back on historically to guide what you're doing now. How have people's attitudes in view of COVID-19 changed over the past year in your community? 
So it's like any American, like you have camp that has conspiracy theory about the whole thing. You have another camp that actually take it seriously and very, very careful. And you have another camp that's kind of a little bit like in between. So the same thing, the Muslim community is the same thing, but there's a kind of like a general trajectory now or a general line of thought among a lot of people here in America that they're a little bit easy with COVID-19. I don't know, because they are tired or they're exhausted from a year of the lockdown or a year of being careful. The big challenge for us to make sure that we, the safety of the people is our main priority over anything else. As a spiritual leader, how important is it for the mosque to be a source of trusted information and community outreach for getting vaccinated? It is really important. Like, actually, I made a video targeting, like, the Arabic-speaking audience in the Muslim community, talking about, like, the COVID-19 vaccines between myth and uh, truth or science. I'm sure you're aware of, like, the conspiracy theory that's going on around the vaccines. But as Muslim community, like, science is a big deal. This is why we have a verse in the Quran that's actually very clear stated that says, when somebody tells you about some news, you have to verify the concept of verification and knowing where the where the news are coming and the information is coming from and whether it's trusted source or not is really highly rooted in the Islamic traditions. That's as a faith leader to bring that or revive this in the people's hearts and minds, pushing them as Muslims, you, you need to go for the truth always. So sharing the science can be a way of sharing the faith. With far fewer people returning, how has that affected the financial needs of the mosque? So if you depend heavily on donations, you are really hurting. As a nonprofit organization, mosques are not excluded from that. So that's the biggest, hardest part for us. So we have, as we moved virtually to offer our classes virtually, that's what we have done also in terms of like asking for donations and support from the community. We have been more active on the online and the website and creating accounts like Venmo, like trying to find any ways, campaigns online and everything like that. But it's still hard. It's still really difficult. And like, alhamdulillah, we say alhamdulillah, all praise to God that actually we have gone through that year safely, financially, but we're still struggling knowing how to go forward for the next year because it seems that it's going to stick for us for another year, at least the impact of the COVID-19 at least. What about the mosque's ability to help community members in need? Yes. So, so the mosque doesn't only provide a place for people to worship and pray. The mosque here is a community center. Part of it, like big, big rule of us is to fi- f- provide the financial support. So we focus in the food banks. Um, so our praise to God that actually we have provided almost 5,000 5, care packages to, to people since the beginning of the COVID to their homes, people that they couldn't go outside and they are quarantined. Some of them are actually immigrants. Some of them are refugees. Some of them are very disconnected from the society because they, they don't speak the language. There's a language barrier. But our praise to God that actually that's, that has been our focus and we've been excelling in that. Yes, we can struggle, but the people struggle is far more important for us because what's going to happen if somebody doesn't have food in the table? They're going to be sleeping hungry. So that's more need for that focus in that part of support, you know? Mm-hmm. So the mosque itself is struggling financially, but still doing as much as it can in the community. How do you think the pandemic will affect the Muslim community in Colorado or change Islam long term? I think the pandemic changed a lot. My biggest struggle that I think the Muslim community might go through 
is how to connect the people back to mosques, how to connect them, the people who are used not to go to a mosque for a period of time, a long period of time because of the COVID. Uh, but it needs a lot of work from us to encourage people go, going back to the mosque after everyone gets vaccinated, after everyone is safe, and after we're going back to normal. And one year into this, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm speaking to you now. I'm good. Alhamdulillah. We, we always say Alhamdulillah means all praise to God that no matter what's, what's happening in my life, it's still all praise to God for the beauty of things that I am not aware of and the blessings that I can't count. That's why I tell the people, and that's why I tell them really genuinely, like I'm a person that's struggling. I'm a person that's actually having a hard time being by myself. Actually, I'm here by myself and it's weird, but that type of, I, I'll have, all praise to God that actually I'm living that life. So to connect to people, especially the ones that are actually struggling with the social connection, especially in the light of COVID. Imam Muhammad Khalila, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Imam Muhammad Khalila of the Downtown Denver Islamic Center. Mosques, of course, aren't the only places that have had to adjust services during the pandemic. CPR's Haley Sanchez introduces us to one woman who has still found connection despite being distanced. Jesse Hennessy attends Jefferson Unitarian Church in Golden. At the start of the pandemic, Hennessy said she liked being comfortable at home, but it wasn't quite the same. I liked being able to just sit in like whatever I wanted to wear that day. It did feel like I didn't get to connect as much. A year later, her congregation still hasn't returned to in-person. But instead of only having worship services remotely, they now have youth groups and other meetings online. She still misses seeing everyone, though. All those like casual conversations and like the weak tie connections of people that you recognize, but you don't necessarily know all that well. That's been, I think, the biggest loss for me. Even though Hennessy's connection to her local church isn't quite the same, she says virtual services have helped her stay close to another congregation, First Universalist of Minneapolis. She lived in the Twin Cities for several years and still considers it home. Maintaining her tie to that congregation has been huge, especially during the George Floyd protests. The Sunday after George Floyd was murdered, that time for all ages was really rooted in um, a piece of what the covenant is that we say every week, to seek the truth in love. Here is a person who had this experience with the police and isn't alive anymore. It was really powerful. It felt like it wasn't shying away from the conversations that needed to happen. Hennessy isn't sure when she'll be able to return to church in person, and she's okay with that for now. But when the time comes, she doesn't think houses of worship will be able to get rid of the online component. There are a lot of people who have found a faith home that isn't geographically convenient and are going to want to stay connected, and those churches are going to hopefully want to keep those people connected too. It might make my Sunday mornings a little more complicated, which is, I don't know, maybe exciting. Jesse Hennessy of Arvada. Our thanks to CPR's Haley Sanchez for producing that segment. Read more stories about the impact of the pandemic as Colorado marks one year since its first case of COVID-19 at CPR.org. Black-footed ferrets are one of the most endangered animals in North America. To help save this little mammal found in Colorado, scientists have brought Elizabeth Ann into the world. She's a clone of a ferret who lived more than 30 years ago. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. 
A small face pokes its nose through the bars of a metal cage, curious about the two women who've entered the room. Robin Bortner opens the cage door. This is Mama. Normally, if this was a black-footed ferret, we could not do anything like uh, we are now, which is handling her. (laughs) It's very different for us to work with ferrets that don't want to bite you. Bortner is the captive breeding manager at the National Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center near Fort Collins. And this domestic ferret she's holding is a surrogate mom to the first cloned endangered species native to North America, who is still hiding in the nest box. I would like to see if I can get her into this little handling cage and then um, get a weight on her. That's Della Gorell, a veterinarian for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Gorell gets Elizabeth Ann out from hiding, but not before she does a defensive bark. Cleaning black-footed ferret cages often requires earplugs. Bortner reads out loud Elizabeth Ann's weight. 816 grams. Very good weight for a female black-footed ferret. And she has all the usual characteristics of her species, um, which are the classic black feet, a black tip tail. And a strip of dark fur across her eyes, like a mask. Elizabeth Ann might look like all the other black-footed ferrets, but she is quite unique. She's the clone of a ferret who died in the 80s. Here's Gorel. It's pretty inspiring that people 30 years ago saved those tissues in case this could happen someday. So dreams do come true. <laughs> Gorel says the bigger dream is to get the black-footed ferret off the endangered species list. And Elizabeth Ann is here to help with that. Ben Novak is the lead scientist of the biotechnology nonprofit Revive and Restore, which collaborated with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to bring her to life. Elizabeth Ann stands to bring in this huge boost of diversity for the species. Today, every black-footed ferret is related to each other somewhere between a sibling and a first cousin. The black-footed ferret was once thought to be extinct. Then in the early 80s, a ranch dog in Wyoming dropped a carcass off on its owner's porch. Biologists captured what was left of this group. Only seven of those ferrets were able to contribute to the breeding program. Elizabeth Ann was cloned from the tissue of a ferret named Willa. She actually has no living descendants. Disease, habitat loss, and the decimation of prairie dog populations, a black-footed ferret's main source of food, drove these animals close to extinction. There are now around 500 ferrets back in the wild. Novak believes Elizabeth Ann embodies a paradigm shift for conservation efforts. We're being proactive. A lot of times in conservation, we are reacting to a crisis that's urgent in the moment. So we cloned Elizabeth Ann to bring in new genetic diversity and get ahead of those problems so that hopefully they'll never happen. Genetic diversity helps protect animals from things like disease. Revive and Restore is still working on what Novak calls its moonshot projects, like bringing back the woolly mammoth. A project like that could take decades. In the meantime, their new technology could work on other conservation challenges faster. We are at the dawn, I believe, not at a culmination of our understanding about how these kinds of samples can be used. That's Oliver Ryder, the director of conservation genetics at San Diego Zoo Global. He got those samples in the 80s from the veterinarian who was working with those captured black-footed ferrets. And I told him how important I thought it might be to get a small skin biopsy that we could grow cells from. I went home and then later some samples arrived in the lab. Those black-footed ferret cells were kept at the Frozen Zoo in San Diego, a collection of cryopreserved samples. Last year, they were turned into embryos and implanted in the domestic ferret. Ryder thinks Elizabeth Ann's birth shows that cloning could help prevent extinctions. 
He'd like to see more samples collected and banked, even if animals aren't endangered, since one day they could be with threats like climate change. I think the combination of these technologies can really provide a basis for ensuring that we have wildlife populations in the future. Elizabeth Ann will live at the Conservation Center, along with her identical clone sisters who are on the way. The hope is their babies and their genes will eventually be introduced into the wild. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. A large-scale project is in the works to restore rivers in Colorado's Pike National Forest. The effort involves a surprising secret weapon, beavers. Beavers turn dry land into wetlands, which makes for healthier ecosystems, according to Mark Beardsley. He's part of the restoration project. They're remarkably awkward on land, and they're graceful in water. So their strategy for survival is to make things wet because they want to be in the water. That's where they're safe. So several conservation groups in Colorado are working to restore rivers by building fake dams to create a hospitable habitat for the beavers. Beardsley says it's worked up before on a smaller scale. One of the funnest things we do, for sure, is we mimic the effect of beavers in their absence. So we create dams the way that beavers would. And we think if we do it right, that it'll actually attract beavers to come and take over for us. Because we know anything we do for it to last a long, long time, we actually need nature to come in and start doing the work for us. We're going to talk more broadly about how beavers can change the environment and reduce the effects of climate change. Ben Goldfarb is the author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Eager was born out of a series you wrote for High Country News called Beaver Whisperer. You described beavers as landscape miracle drugs. What does that mean? Well, as Mark said, of course, beavers build dams, uh, and those dams turn to be really important for the environment, right? They create these ponds and wetlands that provide all kinds of ecological benefits and services. So they're storing water like little reservoirs. They're filtering out water pollution. Uh, They're sequestering carbon, and they're creating amazing habitat for all kinds of fish and wildlife species. So they're kind of these incredible ecological Swiss army knives that are, are filling all of these different really important roles at once. Like you say, as they're storing the water, beavers can actually turn the running water into still water. Tell me more about why that's important for ecosystems to have access to still water. Yeah, you know, we know that in the American West, wetlands cover about 2% of total land area and support something like 80% of the biodiversity, right? Water is life. Uh, And beavers, by creating these water features, uh, are tremendously important. So think about being, you know, uh, so here in Washington, you know, we've got got salmon, of course, in Colorado, you guys have cutthroat trout. Uh, Think about being you know, a little baby fish, the length of a pinky, you know, you don't want to live in the main stem river, you're just going to get blown downstream by the current, you want to live in a, you know, a nice, slow water pool or back channel or side channel or eddy with lots of brushy cover from predators. And that's exactly the kind of complex, slow water habitat that beavers create. Right. So for a lot of creatures, access to just quickly running water that's running right through isn't enough. You've got to have some still water as well. Tell me more about why you have to actually build fake dams in this process. Why won't beavers just come and build them themselves? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So if you, if you think about kind of a, a healthy beaver-filled stream, all of those beaver dams are basically acting like kind of aquatic speed bumps, right? They're slowing the stream down, they're spreading it out, they're pushing the water out onto the floodplain. But when you lose beavers from the stream, there's nothing checking the velocity of that water. And in many cases, streams just erode really dramatically. The, you know, the kind of the force of the current basically carves them to bedrock and basically turns the stream into this incised or eroded canyon uh, like a fire hose. And it becomes really hard for beavers themselves to build back in those streams. So by building these, these beaver dam analogs, these kind of starter human-built beaver dams, you know, you're basically giving the, the beavers a leg up uh, and you're creating conditions in which they can then recolonize a, a stream that they might not be able to settle in otherwise. And beavers are pretty highly predated otherwise, right? They're not really very good on land without those dams. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard biologists refer to them as kind of a, a fat, slow, smelly uh, package of meat, you know, <laughs> and they get eaten by cougars and, and bears and wolves in places that have wolves. So a beaver on, on land is definitely in trouble and they, they really need those dams and ponds and wetlands uh, to create their own shelter. So Eager describes a time when beavers were rampant in North America. Tell me what their population is like now. Yeah, it's a it's a good a good question. You know, we don't we don't really know. Uh, so so certainly historically, there were hundreds of millions of beavers in in North America, as many as four hundred million. Uh, and now there are you know maybe ten to fifteen million. We don't we don't really know. Uh, so you know certainly they're not an endangered species, right? They're fairly abundant, uh, but they still exist at a tiny fraction of their historical prominence on the landscape. So projects like this one are, are really helpful in kind of recreating the historic conditions that would have existed uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans and the, the industrial fur trade. Have you seen dam projects like this work anywhere before? Yeah, these kinds of, of beaver dam analog projects are, are becoming increasingly prominent and, and beneficial really all over the American West. Uh, you know, in, in Oregon and Washington, there are some fantastic beaver dam analog projects that are creating salmon habitat. Uh, in Nevada, you see them being used uh, to, to uh, enhance wet meadows for sage grouse. Uh, in Montana, they're being used to basically capture old mining waste, right, because the dam slows the water down and all of the heavy metals being carried along in the water column kind of settle out. Uh, so, yeah, this, this, these kinds of beaver dam analog projects are, are becoming uh, really popular. Your colleague, Dr. Emily Fairfax, recently completed a study that proved beavers can work to slow and prevent wildfires. How does that work? Yeah, so so Emily actually conducted this research at, at, uh, at Colorado State University during her, her PhD. Uh, and this is a, a really important study. So, you know, for a long time, one of the things that people in the beaver world suspected is that beavers kind of played this important fire break or fire refugia function, right? Because water doesn't burn, you know, and by spreading water out across the landscape, you know, the hypothesis was uh, that that beavers, you know, would, would prevent the spread of wildfire, at least slow the spread of wildfire. And this is something that had been anecdotally observed, uh, but never really quantified. So Emily did this, this wonderful study looking at, at uh, a number of fires in a number of different states around the American West, and basically found that in streams that had beavers, 
you know, wildfires were were much were they were they were not nearly as bad essentially. Um, that the streams stayed much lusher and greener and wetter uh, as the fire passed over, and that's really important again for small mammals, amphibians, birds, uh, even you know livestock in some cases potentially, uh, which can all use that that kind of beaver built lifeboat essentially that wildfire refugia and survive the fire and then and then repopulate the landscape from there. I love this idea as dams as lifeboats for animals and wildfires. Just briefly before we go, Ben, what do you love about beavers and what can we learn from them? You know, I, I love so many things about beavers. You know, I think that the, that one thing about them is just how amazingly human they are, right? I mean, like us, they modify their surroundings to enhance their own food and shelter. They live in these wonderful kind of cooperative family structures. Uh, but, you know, whereas human infrastructure and human landscape modification tends to harm other forms of life, Beavers are, of course, creating habitat for other life. They're sheltering all of these these other species. So our impulse to build tends to be destructive. Uh, Theirs tends to be constructive for nature. And I think there's a lot we could learn from that. Ben, thank you so much for sharing this. Thanks a lot for having me. Ben Goldfarb is the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. We spoke in November about how beavers can change the environment and reduce the effects of climate change. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek, Ali Budner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. 